Tonight we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Philippians. We'll be in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 as a brief uh, way to encourage you with how to get the most out of our experience with Philippians before we get into the message tonight. I love teaching through books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, but when you are reading a letter, especially a letter of Paul, part of what we miss by being able in our comforts and luxuries to take 10 weeks to study it is you miss the fact that it was a letter that was written and it was meant to be read in one time together it wasn't meant to be they didn't come together and they're like all right guys this week chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 come back next week and we'll read the rest of this letter I mean you can go home and you can read the book of Philippians in 15 minutes from chapter 1 verse 1 to the end of chapter 4 and so part of what I want to encourage you to do just to commit to doing uh, for the next uh, four or five weeks, the last five, six weeks we're in this book, is to commit to reading through Philippians at least twice a week. It's 15 minutes. It can be a substitute for whatever you maybe normally do for your uh, morning devotion or your afternoon or evening devotion. Maybe you read it together in your family devotions. But it's 15 minutes, and you will begin to see and be able to trace out the full arc of Paul's thoughts and Paul's encouragements to the Philippian believers. And part of why I bring that up is with verses 27 through 30, we can almost miss some of the impact of the wording and the way that Paul talks to the Philippian believers because we've been breaking this thing up. And so while it's good for us to do that, there is also benefit with these shorter letters of reading them all the way through multiple times through the week to get a better feel for what Paul is saying and that's how they were originally intended to be heard was read and pre read and then taught through in one sitting so there you go try to read through Philippians a couple of times a week I think it'll make our time together on Sunday evenings and then in small groups so that much uh, more fruitful growing up from 1995 through 2012 Anytime a new James Bond movie would come out, there would be a group of guys from back home who would go see these movies together. So we started with uh, GoldenEye, uh, which was the first one I went to see in the theater, Pierce Brosnan's first turn as 007. And the last one uh, that I went to see uh, was Quantum of Solace. But it was the 2006 Bond Casino Royale that was Daniel Craig's first turn as James Bond that was very vivid for me. I was nearing the end of my degree at App. I was 21, 22 years old, 21 years old, just kind of, man, ready to take life by the horns. And I can remember walking out that night, and this is just full disclosure because this is how I operate. As we walked out that night, like I can distinctly remember, I could take you back to that movie theater in Hickory and recreate this if I had to. I kind of walked out, and I kind of straightened up a little bit, kind of rolled my shoulders back, kind of tried to adjust the way my shirt hung off my lanky frame. And I started to like look around at the tops of buildings like, are we under a threat of attack? Do I need to be ready to be a spy? Do I need to be ready to be James Bond in Hickory, North Carolina right now? And I drove home a little more daring than I would. I mean, I was in like complete, man, well, obviously the spy thing didn't work out because, well, here I am, or at least that's what you think. Uh, but I watched a two-hour movie about a fictional character. And even though it's silly, and I don't know why this water bottle's doing this thing, but it is what it is. We'll just roll with it. Um, if it falls, oh well. 
what was crazy to me as I thought back about that day, because it's still so vivid and I can remember, is that I watched a story about a fictional character who, in all honesty, has no really um, character attributes you would really seek to reproduce in your life. And yet, in watching that in a moment, I was susceptible to trying to then change the way that I walked, change the way that I thought about life, change the way I looked around my surroundings. And so tonight, when we look at Paul's words to the Philippians in 127 through 30, we see Paul aiming to increase the confidence of the believers in Philippi. He's going to encourage them to make sure that their lives align, that they indeed do walk differently and conduct themselves differently, not because they've seen a play or heard a fictional story about some great person, but it's because their hearts have actually been changed by the gospel. Paul wants them to live as if the gospel is true in their own life and that in doing so, when suffering visits them, they would know how to rightly view suffering and live even through suffering for the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful tonight. We're grateful for your word. We can take for granted the fact that we have access to your word. Because it's so readily available in print and in digital format and in all these various ways that we can be exposed to it, sometimes we just take for granted that it's there. But God, your, your word is grace to us. Your word is how we better understand who you are, who we are, all that you've done for us, and then how our life should be lived in response to your gracious goodness to each and every one of us. And so tonight as we work through your word, as we read your word, would your spirit, the same spirit that inspired the writing of Philippians is the same spirit that lives in us. And so would that spirit work in us? Would your spirit work in us to cause us to walk out these doors tonight, aware that there is a way to live worthy of the gospel? And would your spirit continue to bring that about in our lives, both now and until the day we see you face to face? In Christ's name, amen. Paul has used verses 1 through 26 to bring the Philippians to the point that he can say to them they need to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul says in Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul wants the Philippian believers to live a life worthy of the gospel regardless of whether or not he makes it back to them from prison. For Paul... Gospel living, living a life worthy of the gospel, is not to be predicated on his physical presence with them. Right living, living that is in Paul's words, worthy of the gospel of Christ, is living that can only be brought about by the Spirit of God indwelling God's people. 
And so that's what Paul is after as he writes these words. And much like a skilled teacher, Paul tailors his approach to the Philippians in the preceding verses so that this exhortation to worthy living. Now remember, we've talked about this. The Philippian believers were doubting their own ability to hold firm to their Christian witness. Paul has so worked in the previous 26 verses to bring them here so that when he gives them an exhortation to worthy living, it doesn't land as added pressure on already overburdened souls, nor does it carry with it a sense of flimsiness or lack of weightiness where the Philippians can dismiss Paul's words out of hand without having to take the time to think about the reality of how the entirety of the gospel affects the totality of their lives, both individually and corporately. And so Paul brings them to verse 27 by carefully walking them in 26 verses up to the point that he could say, live a life worthy of the gospel, and they don't immediately dismiss it out of hand, nor do they feel like it is Paul piling on to them in their already weakened sense of how they are going to be able to continue to live out the gospel. So what does living a life worthy of the gospel look like? D.A. Carson says that conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. And that's what Paul follows up 28, 29, and 30, all point to three distinct ways that we as believers can live lives worthy of the gospel. So according to Paul, it looks like believers living in unity around the gospel. It looks like believers refusing to be afraid of those who oppose the gospel. And it looks like believers being willing to suffer for the gospel. Those are the three marks, according to Paul's own words, that would be marks of living a life worthy of the gospel. 27 through 30, even though they're at the tail end of chapter 1, actually serve to open up the body of the letter that runs until the very first few verses of chapter 4. And so this is Paul getting into the meat of the letter, and these verses lay the groundwork for everything he's going to talk about over the next few chapters of Philippians. So Paul says the first thing is this. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. For the Philippians to be a church that continued to produce maturing and reproducing disciples, Paul knew they needed to be characterized as those who held the gospel central. The gospel had to be what remained primary and of first importance in the church, and that hasn't changed in all of the intervening years from when Paul penned the letter to the church at Philippi to us right here, right now. The gospel has to remain the center point of the church. Because from Philippi on, we have either lived through or heard stories or read histories of churches who have been derailed and rendered useless in the service of the gospel, not from external forces that pressed in on them, but from internal divisions where the gospel is willingly or sometimes even subtly pushed out to the periphery and church members began aligning themselves around secondary theological points or in a worst-case scenario, cultural divisions. 
this is why Paul would write in his letter to the church at Colossae in Colossians. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. The center of point, the only way the Philippian believers are going to maintain a hold on their Christian witness in their city was to hold the gospel as primary. It was to be the one thing that unified them both in spirit and in mind, and it was to be the one thing that everybody worked for together. The faith of the gospel is the marching orders for the church. It has not changed, and it will not change. It was the directions that Christ gave as he stood on the hill at the end of Matthew's gospel before he ascended into heaven. The Great Commission. Go therefore unto all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Of first importance in any healthy church is that the gospel becomes what gives us one mind and one spirit and one goal to strive for. The citizens, though, of Philippi at large and those who had come out of that society and become believers and become members of the church still wrestled with the fact that if you are a Philippian resident, you took great pride in your standing as a colonial outpost of the Roman Empire. To be born in Philippi, to be born a true Philippian, was to be born granted the full rights and privileges of a Roman citizen. And it was intoxicating to think about all that could be yours if you lived and towed the party line of the empire. All that was at your disposal if you would just bow the knee to the empire. And here comes a church springing up out of that ground. And it all of a sudden calls you not to bow the knee to the empire, but to give your life and your knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As the ESV says in their study notes on this section of Scripture, Paul is writing to remind the Philippian believers that they should look to Christ and not to Caesar for their model of behavior since their primary allegiance is to God and his kingdom. It does not take a big leap of the imagination to take those same words and put them directly in the church today. In our current climate today, it is all too easy to bring politics into the church to serve as our center, our point of primary identity from which we begin to understand how we relate to each other and the world. It is here that the church has, I believe, to its own detriment, unquestionably followed the lead of an increasingly polarized and politicized society. And we have begun, even in the church, to make political party affiliation a basis for questioning the genuine validity of others' salvation and love for Jesus. 
We are in the same boat that the Philippians were in, meaning we need to be reminded here, just like the Philippian believers then, you do not look to Caesar for your model of behavior. You do not look to the President of the United States. You do not look to Congress. You do not look to a Republican Party or a Democratic Party or any other political ideology for understanding what your model of behavior should be. You look to God and his kingdom because that is where your first and primary allegiance is if you are a believer and a follower of Christ. When you begin to face, that was very distracting. (laughs) I was really going, man, dang it. Because here's the reality. Eventually, the kingdom of Caesar or the kingdom of the U.S., or the empire, however you choose to define it, will run afoul of the kingdom of God. There is no political party or ideology that perfectly aligns with how God desires for his people to live in response to his rule and to his grace. And if you begin to try to make single political parties or an overt sense of nationalism and love for the country you call home, if you begin to try to make that line up with the gospel and the message of the scriptures, all you end up doing is losing all credibility about what it is to be a devoted follower of Christ in this world. We do well to heed Paul's exhortation to the Philippians, and we maybe tonight need to recommit that we will not look to the political party or our nation, but we will look to Christ himself and the faith of his gospel as the unequivocal center of our churches and how we relate to others, especially other believers. So Paul says, live a lot. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Don't let it be worthy of the empire of Rome. Don't let it be worthy of being accepted unquestioningly into a political party in the United States. Let your life be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that means you, you need to be okay with the fact that there are Democrats who are genuinely in love with Jesus and they're going to be in heaven. And you need to own the fact that there are going to be Republicans who genuinely love Jesus and are going to be in heaven. There are going to be independents. There are going to be those who live currently under a communist regime, under a Marxist regime, under a socialist regime. There are people in every corner of this world living under very different circumstances who are your brothers and sisters because their primary allegiance, just like you, is not to a political party. It is to one ruler, one kingdom, and he is Christ the second way Paul says that the Philippians could live 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 lives worthy of the gospel was to not be afraid of those who oppose the gospel so we hold the gospel central as a church we hold the gospel central in our lives but what that doesn't do is that doesn't reduce us and it wasn't to reduce the Philippian believers to being highly individualistic in the working out of their salvation. We're going to get into later where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But the 
reality of this is, as Paul calls them to live a life worthy of the manner of the gospel, is that Paul is calling them to take the message of the gospel and the implications of the gospel outside the four walls of the church and seek the believers are to seek to fully integrate their lives so that what they confess in the church and in private begins to influence how they live out in the world. And what does Paul know that will bring them? He knows that it will bring opposition. And so he starts them by focusing them on the gospel as primary so that they would have one spirit and one mind and one thing that they're striving for so that when you go outside the church and you begin to talk about the gospel and its implications for your life and for how society should look, you realize you're not going at it alone. You realize that even though there may be people that you worship beside who differ from you politically or socially, you know that at the bottom, at the core of who they are, they are in agreement with you in mind, in spirit, and in striving for the faith of the gospel. And if you don't know that when you gather weekly with the body, that regardless of where you fall, you've got the support of others, it becomes very hard to begin to live on witness outside the walls of the church. So when the Philippians took the gospel outside the walls of the church, they found themselves in positions where they were the ones who had to speak truth to power. They were the ones who had to address societal sins. They were the ones who proclaimed Christ as the only way. And they were the ones who began to attract opponents. The encouragement of verse 28 where Paul says that they shouldn't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. Paul is encouraging them that there, was a that there wasn't going to be a way to avoid opposition to the gospel. But there was a way to rightly understand how you are to relate to those who oppose you. Again, the ESV study notes are so helpful in helping clear this up. They says this, The Philippians' ongoing courage in the face of opposition caused their opponents to realize that such remarkable strength could come only from God. Therefore, those who continue to oppose God's people will be marked for destruction. God's sustaining grace amid trouble will assure the believers of their own final salvation. As the believers became vocal witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as people began to oppose that message because the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ confronted the societal sins of the empire, the believers were to understand not that it was a matter of being delivered away from the oppressors, but to understand that if you are in love and in grace and in truth and in a genuine care of your heart, speaking the gospel into a sinful and lost world, you're going to attract opposition. And the longer people stay opposed to you, not because you're a jerk. If you're a jerk, you deserve opposition. But if you're trying to be a faithful, everyday witness to the gospel, and you begin to experience opposition, Paul says, understand it this way. The opposition should serve as confirmation for you that you are living the right way. And 
it should help you to see your enemies as those who are marked for destruction, which, while it's not written here, if we understand the gospel and the way it works in our lives, what's not said, but what we can imply from Paul's words is this. If we begin to see those who oppose us not as our enemies, but as those who are marked for destruction, then we can begin to pray for the very people who oppose us. Because we know that they have the wrath of God hanging over their life. And we look to Christ on the cross and we begin to understand his words where he cried out father forgive them for they know not what they do may it be true of us as his followers that as we experience oppression as we experience confrontation as we seek to be faithful witnesses to the gospel that we would not pray for the destruction of our enemies because we know if their hearts aren't changed, they're going to face destruction. Would we be those who in mercy begin to pray for our oppressors that their hearts would be changed? That is their only hope. And it is why it does us well not to retaliate with anger, with venom, with malice. It does us wonders to respond with prayers on their behalf that God would have mercy and change their hearts. But those opponents, even in their stiff naked neckness, not nakedness, <laughs> with a stiff neck, that's uncomfortable, with a stiff neck and a hard heart, they began to realize, even in Philippi, that their true opponent was not the believer who stood in front of them. They were really opposed to the God of the universe. And they would even then begin to realize that they were in a losing battle. And I believe, if we're honest with ourselves, again, it doesn't take a lot of a leap of an imagination to go from Philippi in the first century to us right here, right now. We, too, are to be taking the message of the gospel outside the walls of the church, allowing it to fully influence our lives, not only in public, but in private. And I said that backwards, not only in private, but in public. We are to be those who now in our day proclaim Christ as the only Savior. We are to speak truth to power. We are to address societal and systemic sins that plague our country, our city, our neighborhood. And when we do, just like the Philippian believers, we will draw opposition. Much like the Philippians, we find ourselves speaking out against almost the exact same list of societal ills. Just like the Philippians, we find ourselves speaking out against racism, against slavery, against economic disparity, against sexism and the treatment of women, against the value and sanctity of all lives, especially the unborn, the elderly, and the disabled. We find ourselves speaking out, speaking truth to power against gross governmental abuses of power, and on the list goes. 
And wherever you jump in, wherever there is something in there that you go, I know and I've seen these systematic societal sins at play. And you choose to begin to speak the truth of the gospel over against the lies and the deceit and the sinfulness of the world. You're going to draw opposition because in every one of those sins, in every institutionalized systematic societal sin, when the gospel begins to address them, you're going to affect two things that people have proven Throughout history, they will fight to defend their power and their money. To take up the cause of Christ, to go outside these walls and begin to speak honestly and winsomely and affectionately about how the gospel addresses these things is to begin to press up against the power and the money that serves as the currency of the current empire at work the dominion of darkness that hangs over a sin-cursed world and when you begin to push the gospel into those areas you always meet opposition and so living faithfully for the gospel is not without cost but if we're honest it is often our privilege that can blind us to the need to see and address these systemic and institutionalized sins of our society. We all live in a place where we do not ever have to open our mouths against any of those sins that we see. But, the power of the gospel, the work of the Spirit in our life causes those scales of privilege to fall from our eyes so we can see and we can speak the truth of the gospel with conviction and power into our world, being a voice for the voiceless, being a voice for the marginalized and the oppressed. We find ourselves in a position where we can fulfill the second command of Christ to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do, and when you draw opposition, Paul says this, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Both the destruction of those who remain opposed to God and the salvation of those who have been saved by his gospel are both the work of God. So Paul says, don't fear. Don't fear. And he goes on and he says this in 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. When truth is spoken to power over and over and over again, when the gospel begins to really hone in on and gain traction in going after these institutionalized societal sins, we are often confronted with the increased chance for suffering to take place in the lives of believers at the hands of those who stand opposed to the cross and its message. This was something the Philippians would have been well aware of as news of the increasing persecution in Rome spread to the outer reaches of the empire. However, Paul wants the, Philipp the Philippians to have a right view of the suffering when it arrives. 
He says their faith along with their suffering have both been granted to them by God. In other words, Philippian believers, not only is your faith a gift from God, but when suffering comes knocking on your door, you need to understand that it too has been granted to you by God. And Paul, of all people, can teach with authority on this seemingly opposed truth of suffering and faith being God's gifts to his children because of his own life's example. As he says, they are now engaged in the same conflict that they saw he had and now hear that he still has. But we need to make sure, I want to pause here for some clarity. Because you need to understand suffering rightly. There is a sense in which if we begin to get this area, this idea of divine suffering wrong, it begins to change how we share the gospel. It begins to change how we respond to the suffering when it arrives in our life. And so I want to read you a, a paragraph from Moises Silva's commentary that I think gives us the clarity that we need. This is what Silva says. One ought to be careful, incidentally, not to draw the wrong conclusions from what Paul says about suffering as a divine gift. Suffering is not in itself a good thing, but an evil characteristic of this sinful world. And certainly, we must not think of evil in the sense of sin as proceeding from God. Believers certainly are not admonished to thank God for experiencing personal tragedy. But we may, indeed we must, thank him that he does not isolate us from evil experiences. We are to praise him that in his wisdom he uses them to strengthen us and thus to accomplish his saving purposes in us. That is such an important distinction to make. These two things in particular. Suffering is not in itself a good thing, but an evil characteristic of this sinful world. And since it comes from evil, we must not think of it as proceeding from God. And we are not admonished to thank God for experiencing personal tragedy. But we do thank him that he is not limited in his power, that when suffering and tragedy do touch our lives, do come in the front door of our lives and seem to be creating havoc, that he in his wisdom can work through even those moments to accomplish his specific purposes for each of our lives. And so we need to rightly understand that when suffering is granted to us, It is not evil issuing from the pure character of God, and it is not something where we are called to take severe personal tragedy and somehow thank God for it. Those are the results of living in a sinful, fallen world. But we do thank God, number one, that he doesn't shield us from them, but in love he allows those things to come into our life so that he can work through them to accomplish his will for us. And so it is that the Philippians could rightly face societal exclusion. They could face the threat of the loss of property. They could even face the threat of the arena if need be. Today, we enjoy religious freedom in the United States that largely shields us from outright suffering for the gospel. There may be moments where we feel the fringes of discomfort because we confess Christ. 
whether it's the case of the cake baker or the florist or other cases that have come up and gone up the ladder and been decided by the courts of the land that they do indeed violate religious freedom. We live in a country that is still committed to providing the freedom to practice your religion as you see fit. We're not here under the cover of night. We're not here in this moment hiding out, hoping we are not discovered. We rarely experience outright suffering for the gospel. We may experience personal tragedy and loss and pain, but the suffering that Paul has in view here is suffering that comes because you're faithfully sharing the gospel and the government especially is bent on shutting your mouth. We very faintly are aware of what that maybe would look like. However, there are those around the world, our brothers and sisters, who this very minute are suffering for their confession of Christ. As a matter of fact, we have some dear friends who I will not name, and I will not name the country that they are in, but in the past month, they have burned every Christian book they own, and they have wiped every device they have of any indication that they are believers because the government is making it their goal to try to stop the witness of the church. And every day now they wait patiently to get out of this country. But they also know that in the intervening days there is the chance. There is the chance that a government official knocks on their door. And this suffering that Paul has in mind walks right through the front door and puts them in handcuffs. And so while we may not experience that now, we bear the burden of praying and caring for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being faithful witnesses to the gospel, who have the same mind and the same spirit and the same striving for the faith of the gospel that Paul talked about earlier in 27. We pray for them that God would be good to them, that they would fear nothing from their opponents, and that they would view the suffering as it comes to them, just like their faith, as being granted by God. And so for them and for us, if, God forbid, the day should arise where we face suffering for the sake of the gospel, we do so with an understanding that our suffering, just like our faith, has been granted to us by God. And this is where the writer of Hebrews gives such a beautiful picture of what faithful living, even in the face of suffering, looks like. The writer of Hebrews in 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 gives just such a beautiful picture of what suffering well for the sake of the gospel looks like. On August 14th, Greg Matt posted this picture on Twitter. And his explanation of why he posted it was this. He said, A friend sent this picture seen on Twitter. Caption read, I collect images of walk-off home run hitters rounding third base because they are images of heaven. And so this, this is what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is after. We're round in third. 
and it's not going to be, I mean, I don't know who I'll be there, but the, fir- but the first person there to greet you with open arms is the Savior, without question. And so the next time you watch a baseball game, and hopefully it's tomorrow night when the, Yan- when the Red Sox beat the Yankees, and you see someone rounding third, headed for home, as they're waiting to be celebrated by their teammates, would it serve as a reminder for us that we won't face suffering, we won't endure suffering, and we won't ultimately be delivered from suffering unless it is with the full support of the church and Jesus himself? Your sanctification and your growth in the gospel is not an individual exercise. It is a communal responsibility that we would have one mind, one spirit, one striving for the gospel, that whatever the opposition looks like, we wouldn't fear it. And when the suffering does come from being faithful witnesses, we would walk forward in whatever the Lord brings our way, knowing that when we round third and when we hit home, that's who's waiting. A whole great cloud of witnesses cheering us on every step of the way. And in that crowd and in that cloud of witnesses will be those who were faithful in their suffering even up to the loss of their life. And they will cheer you on like crazy. When we come in the church to worship together, may the gospel give us a oneness of spirit and mind. When we go out to live as the church on mission, may the oneness of spirit and mind that comes from the gospel serving as our center give us a boldness to stand firm in the face of opposition. And may our commitment to the gospel so strengthen us that we gladly endure suffering for the sake of the gospel as something that by God's goodness has been granted to us from the Father himself. Let's pray.